be kind. That's really probably my life motto is to, to be kind to the teachers you're working with, be kind to the students. And uh, this one sounds a little harsh, but I think it needs to be said. If you don't like children, please don't teach because you make it hard for people who follow you. Welcome to the Get More Math podcast, where we support teachers in their quest for long-term student gains. This is a podcast for teachers to share their passion for math education, learn best practices from experts in the field, and swap ideas for student success. This is community. This is Get More Math. Hello, welcome to the Get More Math podcast. My guest today is Brenda Lynch. I've asked her on the show because she has 40 years of experience, and right now, she's just wrapping up her very last year. She's been a math teacher, she's been an administrator, and I thought it would be kind of fun to do an exit interview, tap her wisdom from so many decades of being in our field and loving kids. She's got a lot of great things to share. I especially loved hearing her advice for new teachers. So let's go to our conversation with Brenda Lynch. Well, good afternoon, Brenda. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, just to give everybody a little background, Brenda has been in education for 40 years. And when I heard that she was retiring this summer, nice timing, by the way. Um, yes. How fun to take a step back and talk to somebody who's been in the field since 1980. Um, Brenda spent some years in other topics, we'll say, OMAC and driver's ed, enjoyed those, but spent the vast majority of her career in education both as a teacher in the classroom and then as an administrator, all in Texas. I, I believe it's all in Texas. Is yes, that right? all in Texas, yes. All right. So so here we have 40 years to talk about, uh, and Brenda has just tons of stories and observations and, and wisdom. So um, let's dive right in. Brenda, uh, let's start with um, stories. Looking back at four decades, and thinking about all the different wonderful things that must have happened in your classroom, the things that kept you going, the things that were delight, a delight to you, can you pick out some favorite success stories? Uh, yes, and there are many. And so uh, so I was thinking about this. Um, I picked out something from um, each of the areas I taught in. I know I started by teaching it um, in Spring ISD north of Houston, and taught uh, home economics. And back then, girls took home ec, and boys took auto shop or ag or uh, wood shop. That was it. And you never crossed the line. Girls couldn't do wood shop, and boys couldn't do uh, home ec. Yes. And so I, but I was ready... Yes, I was ready to break that. So I was one of the first teachers who offered, and and the school was willing to let me do this, offer a course called Bachelor Survival. And it was just for boys, which was a challenge in itself. It's good that I grew up with brothers because I knew how to deal with boys. And uh, I taught them how to plan a basic budget, eat nutritious food. We learned to sew on buttons, hem your pants, and I taught them to iron. They didn't know how to iron. Of course, most people don't know how to do that today. <laughs> yeah. uh, that was a very rewarding class and really the beginning of inviting uh, boys even into the sewing the foods. And now can you imagine boys not being invited into that? Yeah, right. Or girls into auto shop. Yes. I mean, yes. I would have taken Woodshop had they let me. 
All right. Well, that is a fascinating lead story. What else do you have? Then um, in the math world, uh, gosh, it's changed so much. But I think my favorite, I have two favorite stories. One of them, uh, when I taught at Willis High School, I got to teach a class called Math of Money. And in that class, I did a unit on how much it costs to grow old and die. And (laughs) (laughs) well, that was a unit. So we did budgeting and checking accounts. You know, we did how to buy a car, how to rent, all that kind of stuff. But we did this unit on how much it costs to grow old and die. And so we learned about healthcare back then, which was so much simpler than it is now. And we learned about nursing homes and there were no choices back then. Usually most counties had one nursing home or two, and that was it. There was no assisted living, none of that. And then we learned about funerals. And at the end of the unit, we took a field trip. We took one day and we went to the hospital first and went and saw where the babies were born. And then what happens, kind of the check-in, check-out, the workings of a hospital. Then we went to a nursing home and spent about an hour for the students to play games with the residents there and and see how a nursing home functioned. And as an aside, they hated the nursing home. They they didn't huh. want to go. They didn't want to stay. That There was definitely negative response about that. But then we would end at a funeral home. And Cashner Funeral Home in Conroe uh, allowed us to come and visit. And they took us on a tour of their facility. And um, if the embalming room was not occupied, the kids got to see the room. They never got to see dead bodies, Um, but they got to pick their casket and see all the things you could purchase for a funeral. And and, uh, it was so educational. Now, the reason I did this unit is because my husband passed away. And as a uh, 28-year-old, I had to deal with planning a funeral for someone I loved and having no idea how to do that. And funerals um, workers are salespeople. And so I never wanted my students to be subjected to the not knowing how to do anything in that process. I wanted them to make smart decisions that weren't emotional when they had to deal with that because everybody's going to have to deal with this one day in their life. And so uh, it was it was so much fun. And the kids would take that math and money class just to take that unit on death and die, how to grow old and die. <laughs> But I had many students since then who were in that class come back and thank me because, you know, they had someone pass away and they weren't afraid of it because they'd already been through it once with no emotion. So that was an exciting class to teach. One of the most exciting things I did. It was, and that you built that from scratch. It sounds like that was sort of your. Yes. Well, and that that kind of gets you to a little bit of when I started teaching. No one told you what to teach. There were no teaks. There were no standards. It was what did your community need in this course? And that's what you taught. Wow. It was very different than it is now. I wanted to comment on, on the uh, how much does it cost to grow old and die? And I, yeah. I still want to laugh when I read that. It's, it's a very sober topic, but it's, it's sort of, I guess the, the humor is like, who does that? Um, Nobody. <laughs> but now that I, now that I think about it, like that day where you start 
we're at a place where kids are being born and you end the day at the funeral home. I mean, what a day. That's, that's, that's like a Christmas carol journey, right? I mean, that's, oh, yeah. really, that's powerful. So I love it. But anyway, it, it connects for me uh, with one of our recurring topics in our podcast, which is just talking about um, making math learning, making it real, making it stick. You know, that's something that I care about a lot. Is yes. the long-term. Well, all the students that are in that class and go through that unit, there's, there's, they're going to make some gains that will stay with them forever. And I, I love that. So anyway, please continue. Thank you. The, um, one of the more current, because those are relatively older uh, examples, one of the more current examples, I think, is when I became the math specialist at New Caney ISD. I got to decide what my job was going to be. There was no job description. They knew they needed help with math. They didn't quite know what they needed. And I knew the most important thing that I needed to do was build relationships with my teachers because the best learning for students or kids happens when there are relationships that that the learning is based on. So I uh, began meeting with each of them uh, middle school teams and at the beginning and then the high school teams. But one of the middle school teams, we would meet together and they wanted to know so much about why we taught the way we taught. And my whole, my whole life, I have wanted to get rid of the tricks, stop teaching tricks. Like we don't cross multiply. Why do you cross multiply? No butterflies, you know, no, there's so many little what about the alligator opens towards uh, the yeah. <laughs> that I Don't teach that because that just works for the moment, but it doesn't help the kids later. There was one of the planning meetings that we went to. We were talking about dividing fractions. And the teachers, we would teach the kids when dividing fractions, don't ask why, just flip the second and multiply. And then this one of my teachers said, stop, wait, that's a trick. You don't want us teaching tricks. Why do we flip the second fraction? And I didn't know the answer. I don't know why we didn't flip. So we all stopped. We, we Googled it. We went and found uh, some of the college books some of the teachers had in their classroom to go look about why did we really do that. And what we discovered was... We find common denominators to add fractions and to subtract fractions. If you find a common denominator to divide fractions, then the numerator divided by the numerator is the answer, and the denominator divided by the denominator is always one. And that was so enlightening for me and for them. And, and that kind of, that story kind of sets the mood about the success I think I've experienced at New Caney because I worked with teachers who wanted to know the why. They want to know the background. And as much as math education has changed in the last 10 years, the, that, that why is very important. And that was just one that really changed the way I mentored them. And it was great for them to see I didn't have all the answers, but I was willing to learn with them. So maybe you can help me after the show. You can explain to me negative exponents. You know, why, oh, yeah. is, why, <laughs> why is five negative two, one over 25? Um, you know, I, I am guilty to some degree of the occasional trick. And, uh, you know, I, I, I hate I hate it. But there's a few places where I never got there, if you will, to like a, a really a, 
comfortable, strong, I'm not going there to the tricks. I'm just going to go with the understanding. Definitely the tricks are the more efficient way to do it, but somewhere along the way, the student really needs to be exposed to the why. Now, some of them will never care about the why, but if they're exposed to that, that will bring more students along to understand the trick. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or if they build the trick themselves, then, yes. you know, more power to them, right? If they've then like they've wrestled with and they're like, wait, I can do it this way. Um, I love that when they've discovered it themselves. Well, and we know in the absence of education, a teacher teaching a math student, they will develop their own thinking, their own patterns. They will see things that maybe not the way we see them, and they will think that is the way to work the problem until they're challenged with a problem it doesn't work on. Right. And, and so we've seen that a lot. They'll develop their own. Oh, it's, you know, I, and I can't think of an example at the moment, but. Um, I'll give you one. Okay. Because I was an algebra teacher for 20 years and, and definitely I know them, right? Because this would happen. Like we would teach um, graphing vertical and horizontal lines. Yes. And I would always teach it from the concept, which is we're talking about a rule. This says X is always one. X equals one. So give me some pairs of numbers where X is always one. Well, you know, one comma zero, two comma zero, three. Now show me the set of all of those points. Well, you get a vertical line, right? So right. That's, that's what we would do. But then overnight, uh, they would shed all of that <laughs> and, and have just landed on their own kind of funny thing that they would make up, which is if I see X equals one and I see the word graph, I, I need to make a line. It either goes up and down or goes left and right. I can't remember which one. And then, yes. but that's, and then they say, go, well, which one would it be? X equals one. Gosh, that should be parallel to the X axis, right? Because the X axis goes side to side. And then they make the Y equals one graph. But they do it with their own, because they've kind of built their own, like, it's not an understanding exactly. It's just their own funny little rule and not a good one. Right. But until someone challenges that, they think they know it. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a great story. And it's funny, as a sidelight in that story, you said something that is near and dear to me. And that is that, like, when you became that math specialist and you were charged with improving math teaching at New Caney, the most important thing for you, the biggest first target wasn't like this program or this system or these textbooks. It was the people. It was the teachers themselves and relationships with them. I love that. And I love it because, like, isn't that also fundamentally true of educating students. Same same deal, right? Oh, correct. Textbooks are great. Curriculum is great. You know, all kinds of teaching strategies are wonderful, but uh, it's the relationships, really, that, that are the powerful, the most powerful. And, you know, do, don't you agree that math, so many kids come to secondary level math um, either loving it or hating it because they think they're not good at it. When in reality, all they need is some confidence in it. And, and when they find that, then, oh, my gosh, suddenly you unlock all this potential in them. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's one of my great, the great joys of my life has been to play a role in that part. You know, take that 14-year-old who is absolutely convinced that she, she doesn't get math or, you know, that, that heinous phrase, she's not good at math. Yes. Right? And to, to unlock that and turn that around. Sometimes, and actually sometimes in the course of like one week, I mean, like, so it's, it's, it's amazing how, how 
transformational a, a different approach can be. One where they're actually where they're figuring out the whys and not just being told do this random stuff. Correct. Um, or doing something that really has a, a, a close application to their own lives, such as your uh, cost of getting old and dying. <laughs> well, those are great stories. Let's. I, I have some other things I want to ask you about. So remember that the theme here is it's like an exit interview. Like you've got forty years of experience. Let's let's hear some of your stories, and then, and I think we're kind of already kind of nudging into this territory. I'm wondering, you know, between when you started and now. What were some of the biggest discoveries you made about teaching, about education? I think that one of the biggest things that and has kept me uh, loving my job, too, is there is always something new to learn. I mean, I started when computers didn't even exist. And so had I not been willing to change and to learn and to see how those where it could be incorporated in the classroom, I would have been done a long time ago. So there's always something new. I think one of my newer discoveries is that the students can be teachers to teachers. Hmm. With the technology, there are many times a student needs to be teaching the teacher how to use that effectively in the classroom. The calculators brought that to light, especially students would, I had Inspire, or I had, um, yes, I had TI Inspire calculators in my classroom for six months, and I was afraid to get them out because I did not know how to use them. And the teachers, or the students would come in every day and go, what is in that box? What is in that box? I said, well, there are new calculators, but I don't know how to use them. And uh, finally, the student said, okay, Miss Lynch, you just open the box and give them to us and let us teach you. And I said, okay, but I can't help you at all. And that was so powerful for me to realize that students can teach the teachers. So if you're in a classroom where things are not being successful, then my, I would be brave enough. I would encourage other teachers to be brave enough to say, okay, this isn't working. What do you need from me? What am yeah. I doing wrong? If you're brave enough to ask that, or maybe a better way to ask would be, what can I add? What can I provide that would make this more valuable and more understandable to you? I like that. Um, and, and tapping the power of the kids themselves, not sort of having all the responsibility on you, but delegating it to the young exploratory minds. And, you know, I think that kids are naturally curious uh, to learn anything, to learn lots of things until they're told that they can't or until they're told they don't know. And so I have seen, especially in the math classroom, I love this new, uh, with the new teaks that were, um, that they started working on in 19, or in 20. 12 that they rolled out and it really began being based on student discovery, students seeing the pattern, student understanding number sense. That is going, those kids are going to be in middle school and high school this next year. I'm so excited for my teachers to have these students whose number sense is so much greater because they have learned to be curious. Yeah, or 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 I'm going to put it slightly differently. They haven't had their curiosity squashed. <laughs> They've gotten to continue to be curious. You know what I mean? Like they start curious. Yes. And so, somehow they can end up. They they stop being curious because they learn that we don't we don't really facilitate that, right? We're, the, the math class isn't the place to bring your curiosity. 
if, if sort of you have the older kind of more skills approach, right? As we have moved the emphasis off of the answer in math, it's no longer about the answer. It's about the process you use to get to the answer. And that process can be different and we can value each person's um, path, mental path to get there, depending on their past experiences. Our students understand more math today than the students 10 years ago did. And that is awesome. It's kind of fun. You can say that with authority because you were there, right? Yes. We would like to invite all of our listeners to visit our website at getmoremath.com, where you'll find helpful information about how Get More Math can help you transform the math education experience through targeted mastery and cyclical review. We welcome you to take advantage of our free trial for the 2021 school year. Find more information about the free trial at getmoremath.com. Now, back to the show. And that, that actually that gets to my next question. Um, I want to ask you, you've got a 40-year arc to look at. You've got public education. You've kind of touched on this already a few times, but uh, it's really it's a two-part question. How has public education changed over that period of time? And then you know, maybe drill down, how has math education changed? I think, again, I think you just half answered that, but maybe you could say some more. Well, I think that the things that have changed, both public education and math, has been testing and technology. And just the overwhelming number of things that school's responsible for. Now, the, the testing, so when I started, there were no requirements for uh, any course you taught. And so typically a math class was taught from page one to page 300. You just taught through the book. So really the publishers decided what you were going to teach in your math course. Um, that's not the case anymore because when the essential elements came first and now the teaks we have now, they direct exactly what's to be taught in each class. And so, uh, and that was important when that was developed because our students in Texas are very, um, uh, they move around a lot and, and they would go from one school to another school. And if the schools didn't use the same textbook, students could be in very different places and it was not a good thing. And so by the state saying, okay, here are the minimum things you have to teach in a course, at least a student who was very mobile uh, had a chance to have some continuity to what they learned and to get a full course by the end of their year. So the, that so those requirements of what was taught was a great thing. When the testing came out, the tabs and then the teams, I could go through all of them. Essentially, mm-hmm. when testing came out first, it was very low level. And okay. so the first terrible consequence was it watered down all of our courses. Oh, so and and it's taken a long time to get back to it. And I think that when we had the year that we had 15 end of course tests to take, um, that it was overwhelming. But what it did was the test at the end of the year that you took was based on the material you were supposed to learn that year. And as hard as that transition was, it was really the step in the right direction to get our math classes back to teaching at the level they needed to be taught at. So so that's some of the pros, although a little bit of a, a glitch, maybe, if you will, which is a widely impactful 
significant glitch starting out being maybe too easy or maybe too many tests. So, but a pro would be a kid can go from school to school and have like, these are the teaks. They don't change from one school to another. Now you go to another state. And so if you're not in Texas, by the way, a teak is a, a state standard. Um, so you have, in, every state seems to have them, or maybe you have a state that has common core standards. But anyway, are, were there other cons or were there any cons? Well, the testing, the testing just made, it narrowed what the teacher taught and truly people taught to the test. And that some people say that is a very bad thing. Uh, and it was in the beginning. However, now if you are teaching to the test, you are teaching in a math class, you are teaching what needs to be taught for your kids to be successful in that course and in the next course also. So it, mm. it, that's not such a bad thing in math. Now, maybe in other subjects. So, um, another thing that has changed in um, education is just technology. The use of computers sitting here it's very hard for me to think about what was teaching like without a computer. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. And then in, in the math class, the graphing calculator was the first technology that affected the math class. And so I loved the graphing calculator, the implementation of that. I'm a very visual person. If you can teach me something from a picture instead of a formula, I will understand it so much more. And I have found that many students are like that. And so the graphing calculator put a picture to what was very abstract before. And so the implementation of using a graphing calculator has been invaluable. However, I think the challenge that we face now is the calculator has become too much of an answer getterer instead yeah. of a concept builder. Yeah. And so uh, teachers need to know how that's something teachers need to learn now. I see that as a big deficit of teachers need to learn how do I use a calculator to teach a concept, not just to get an answer. Right. Absolutely. So it, it it could be a good thing in a way if it if it pushes us in the right direction, right? Yes. It, oh, yes. It is, it is complicated. It makes it makes things harder in, a, in another way. Uh, well, I think just the whole world of technology makes things harder. <laughs> it's supposed to make it easier, <laughs> but it, I think right. it does add a, a level. It, it requires teachers to have a different level of understanding in order to implement new technology. And of course, now it's not just the, the device is no longer a big deal because the kids can do it on their phone. They don't have to have a Chromebook or calculator or a computer. And so now it's how do I teach math in a virtual online setting so that kids really understand and they can grapple with it and they can have conversation about it and not just watch mm -hmm. a video, do as I do, crank out 30 problems. Yes, which is largely useless, right? Or I always say that, that that's worse than useless because not only is it useless for learning anything, it also communicates a whole bunch about what math is and what to expect when you do a math class. And so, so how long were you a leader in math education, like out of the classroom and, and having a specialist role? So I've been a, a leader uh, for the last 11 years. Okay. And so well, it was 29 in the classroom and then 11 as an instructional specialist. I think that's a great ratio. Like I, as a, uh, as a teacher, I always had a lot of confidence in folks who had been in my shoes for lots of years. Um, 
So you did it for 11 years and now you're just about done. Uh, if you had, you know, the Brenda of 11 years ago come to you and say, hey, I'm just getting started. What should I know about being a leader in math education? What would you say? I think that it is very important as a leader to stay current on the information that comes out. Because if you're a leader, people need to look to you for answers, suggestions, kind of the vision for the future. And so um, I would encourage anyone in my position or looking to be an instructional leader, uh, get connected get connected. Uh, so I, I am part of organizations that let me know what's going on at TEA. When there's a legislative session in Texas, the legislature has a big influence on the way we do school. And so when there's a legislative session, it's very important that you know what's going on, you know what bills are being presented, what actually gets passed, and how it's going to affect your community. And and that is important. And it's not so important that you know everything. It's important that you can figure out how to find an answer or who to refer people to. So networking is very important uh, uh, so that if you don't know, you can say, well, call so-and-so. They may have an idea. Or you have a network of friends that aren't just math teachers that are in the field of education that see the, the whole perspective, not just a very narrow perspective. Then again, I think that um, the relationships are a big part. If you're an instructional leader, you have to have relationships with the people you're going to lead. And so I've always viewed my job as a servant leader. I, I don't have a job unless I'm helping you. And what do you need? How can I help? What does that involve? Um, and that requires a lot of evening weekend work a lot of times because the teachers need what they need pretty quick. And so, um, but leading is, is very important and um, providing, being a servant leader is very important. I'm going to go back to your first answer briefly. And you mentioned networking. It's interesting to me just as a comment. Uh, when I was in the classroom, I had, I'm going to call it probably zero networking effectively. I mean, I talked to the other teachers some, um, and we had monthly department meetings, which were about 20 minutes long. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, when I was in the trenches, it was me and my students, period after period after period, year after year after year. So it's, it's been really interesting for me now. I'm a leader in, in my company, and, and, uh, and it's a different world for me. And all of a sudden, like, networking matters in a way that it, it maybe it should have um but it was it was not uh native to me like i spent decades just focusing on kids kind of and not really i i wasn't the teacher who went to conferences or um talked to teachers in other schools or nowadays uh, i guess use twitter and and that kind of resource right um so it was it was really it's been fascinating to me to to enter the world of of connecting with lots of people and sort of tapping and kind of fun. Um, so anyway, I would just encourage any, any other teachers who are in the classroom and you're carrying on just like I did. Um, I feel like nowadays it's a lot easier to start being connected to other teachers than it ever has been. There's that technology again, right? Um, right. I see teachers on Twitter really in a robust 
and um, exciting way, sharing ideas, sharing frustrations, you know, collaborating. It's really fun. So anyway. Well, and even for the teachers in a very small school district, and they're the only teacher, there's not really mm -hmm. anyone to collaborate with. Well, their world is not limited anymore. So I belong to a couple Facebook groups uh, where people share ideas, ask questions, and it's nationwide. It's not just in Texas. And that has been very valuable to see how willing people are are to share with each other that's probably very different too because my situation was much like yours you closed the door you did your job you left every day you came and did it again tomorrow and that's not the case anymore mm. yeah well i'm glad i think that's i'm, I'm glad that's changing i think it, it, it would have been encouraging to have been connected with people more although yeah. then again i don't even know how much time i mean like i was always going full speed you know um well, so I, I have a couple more questions. Um, okay. One has to do just with, you know, here we are, this, we're recording this in kind of late July, and uh, folks are looking at the fall and wondering, what are they going to do with um, in-person, uh, not in-person, hybrid? How are we going to handle this whole COVID situation? You were just telling me before the show, your district has just decided to go with, uh, to start with remote. So I wondered if you had any thoughts that would uh, maybe be encouragement or um, maybe tactical help uh, as, as people are thinking about the COVID storm. I do. I think the most important thing is be kind and be patient. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, be kind to each other, be kind to your students, be patient with your students, be patient with their parents because they're a part of the picture now too. The it's really important too that teachers share share what you learn and I think in our district some things that have happened just logistically to make this easier uh, we use the Canvas LMS and we created this summer a collaborative course for each one of our courses not just math but whole campus wide every course has a collaborative course that all the teachers are in so they can all plan together so not one one person does not have to do it all and the so my suggestion is to it if you're with a team of people become an expert in one thing and be that thing for everybody if you love to make videos then you're the video person if you are great at finding resources then go find resources bring things to the table and let the other people of the team help to learn how to incorporate it into the online uh, piece to make that work but depend on each other and, uh, and work together and be experts in in one thing because you cannot be experts in everything. I love it. So kind of moving on with that idea of, of teachers kind of dealing with COVID, stepping into this fall, something that's fascinating to me is to think about a whole cohort of new teachers. Every year, there's a big cohort of new teachers. And their first teaching experience at New Caney will be remote, which is just a little, a tad beyond my imagination, let's say, to start there. Um, so you, you don't have to, you don't have to shape your answer to COVID in particular, but um, as you think about new teachers, uh, as you've seen new teachers enter the field for 40 years, right, as colleagues mm -hmm. and as employees, what, what advice would you give to a new teacher? 
Well, I think probably the advice I've shared most often is that um, your principal or instructional leader on your campus is will make or break your job. And so when you go out to interview for jobs, I encourage brand new teachers to be as concerned about interviewing the person that is interviewing them. Ask mm. questions uh, to make sure their vision for what happens in the classroom matches your style. And so if somebody says, no, we expect you to go in your room and teach and, and you'll be on your own and you're used to teamwork and, and supporting each other you may not want to work there, but if you like doing things all on your own and you hate working in teams and they say, oh, you've got this whole group of people to work with you and you're going to have so much help and so much support. We have all this built for you already. And you go, oh, no, I like to create my own stuff. That is not a good fit for you. So it's just really important that you find that first job, that you find somebody who matches your um, what you know of your teaching style at that moment. Uh, be kind. That's really probably my life motto is to to be kind to the teachers you're working with, be kind to the students. And uh, this one sounds a little harsh, but I think it needs to be said. If you don't like children, please don't teach mm. because you make it hard for people who follow you. And so a student in a classroom with a teacher who hates kids, they're just there to do the job. The teachers after that, they'll enter a classroom after that with a lot of suspicion. And so if you find that teaching is not for you, please don't keep doing it. Go find something that is your passion that you love. Yes. Yes, it, that's great. Yeah, and that's kind of hard to say. Well, I'm glad you said it because I, you know, I taught for 20 years and over that period of time, I saw many new teachers discover that working with adolescent, like <laughs> fairly, mm -hmm. fairly challenging uh, 13, 14, 15 year olds was not their thing. And typically uh, there would be some degree of frustration there, right? Because they spent a lot of time preparing uh, for this career and they kind of had a, a notion about how it would go and it didn't go that way. But I saw many people go on to be perfectly happy and fulfilled in other roles, in other places. So it was a kind of a, a hard thing, but really it's a good thing. So thank you for yeah. saying that. Well, and in the classroom, you may not be, you know, everyone loves high school math. I mean, you went through school, you learned this, all this upper level, level math and you know the math well, you're excited about teaching the math, but it's the students sitting in the chairs that are the challenge. <laughs> and so well, maybe- yeah, right. So maybe it's important that maybe you just need to go down a level and teach a little younger student. So it takes a little bit of time at the beginning to figure out where you fit in and where you do well and where you're happy. And so take that time to figure it out um, in order to, to do it as long as I've done. Um, and I think, too, right. I would tell new teachers, share the load. You cannot do it all on your own. And so be willing to learn from other people. You'll bring things to the table that people who've taught 10 or 15 or 20 years won't know. So um, teach them. Share with, so share and then be willing to accept instruction. Probably the most important thing would be to enjoy your holiday breaks. <laughs> 
teaching is such an emotional job, emotional investment. A new teacher needs to know when you get a holiday break, disconnect, unwind, relax, take a real break. It's interesting. That's I was I'm glad you brought that up too. That that was hard to do. You know, because you're you're already kind of you anticipating that you're gonna have to go, you know, right back at it in four days or three days. And it was always hard for me to disconnect. That's a that's really good advice. Well, I'm um, afraid our summers are getting shorter and shorter, but truly what I've learned as an instructional specialist was the two weeks after school was out, a lot of teachers want to go ahead and think about next year. So you have this group of people who are ready to, you know, I, I remember what I did wrong. Please help me look at next year. And then sure. I'm going to put it away for a while. And then you have this group of teachers that can't wait to get out the door the first day, but about the middle of July, they are chomping at the bits for next year because math teachers love to plan more than any other teachers at any school. We want to be ready. And um, so as an, a specialist, you had to kind of you had to meet the needs of this different group. But typically, even as a specialist role, I work my hardest in the summertime. So my breaks are in October or usually February-ish or January because people don't need me as much. But it is important to truly just disconnect, enjoy your family, read a book, sleep late, watch ridiculous TV, something mindless for a little while um, just to, to rejuvenate your spirit and your soul. Well, it has been lovely just taking a little time and getting to hear from you. Uh, I like near the end, you, had, you said something about like, if you want to teach as long as I did, something about enjoying the profession or making sure that you um, share the load. And I thought that's true. Like, like I saw, I did see teachers hit 20 years or 30 years and just get burned out. So it's fun to talk to somebody who's gone 40 and still likes it. And it's just, I can still hear the enthusiasm in your voice. So that's, this this advice you are giving has behind it the legitimacy of somebody who's lived it. Um, so thank you. Well, it has been lovely just taking a little time and getting to hear from you. Uh, I like near the end you, had, you said something about like if you want to teach as long as I did, something about enjoying the profession or making sure that you um, share the load. And I thought that's true. Like. Like I saw, I did see teachers hit 20 years or 30 years and just get burned out. So it's fun to talk to somebody who's gone 40 and still likes it. And it's just, I can still hear the enthusiasm in your voice. So that's this, this advice you are giving has behind it the legitimacy of somebody who's lived it. Um, so thank you. Well, here's one more story just from me. And it's, I, I thought I'd share this briefly because I think it's fun. I met Brenda at, um, a conference in Texas. It was, I believe it's TASM. They have so many acronyms in Texas, but this is a, I believe it's supervisors of mathematics for me. And yes. what was fun for me is Brenda walked up and to my little table and she already had in her mind built get more math, essentially. Like, like she knew what she wanted and she walked up and said, oh, you have the thing that I've been looking for. We're going to try this. It was it was a very short conversation because you already had the whole concept. You already knew what was needed. You were just looking for the implementation. So 
was one of one of my favorite conversations with an administrator because I didn't almost have to explain anything. Like it was already in your head. It was. So. And I'd been looking you for, for you guys for years. Yeah, yeah. So you were you had this great big smile. You were like, I think you've got the thing that I'm looking for. So lots of fun there. I I, I remember that uh fondly, especially because that was a day where I stood there for a long time while you guys were in sessions with nobody to talk to. And then you walked up and we had this nice conversation. So thank you for doing that. And, and thank you for uh, giving our, our product a try. It's really neat. Oh, we have been so pleased. And our students have seen such wonderful success and personal confidence. It has been wonderful. Well, that's delightful. Well, thank you, Brenda. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Get More Math podcast. Drop us a comment and let us know what you thought about this episode. You can always connect with us at getmoremath.com. Have a great day.